already impacts millions of people, but this number can rise every day. Russia and Ukraine are important raw material and food exporters, and their clients are everywhere across the globe. Here, we'll discuss how the war in Ukraine impacts global food supply, the consequences of the war in this matter, who will be most affected, and possible alternatives to the global supply crisis. David Laborde is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. His research includes globalization, international trade, and environmental issues. Welcome to one more episode of Wikistrat Insider, a podcast series that focuses on less discussed angles of the most significant events happening around the world. I'm Marina Guimarães from Wikistrat. Mr. Laborde, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for this opportunity. It's a pleasure. So Russia is the world's largest wheat exporter, accounting more than 18% of the exports. On March 8th, Putin signed a decree that bans the export of certain commodities and raw materials. Which countries are potential substitutes to this exportation? So, yes, Russia is the first wheat exporter. Ukraine is between number three and number five. So the fact that Russia stopped to export, or at least will not export to some countries, is going to create problems. But the fact that Ukraine cannot also export, actually, is part of this issue. So it's mainly a problem on the spot for countries in North Africa or in the Middle East. You start with Morocco, but mainly Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, up to Yemen. And if you go south, a country of Africa like Somalia and so on, that depend a lot on this region, meaning the Black Sea. There's a long tradition of saying that the Black Sea is the breadbasket of Europe, but right now it's a breadbasket of both Europe, Africa, and the part of Asia. So now what the countries are doing, especially in the Middle East, is to find alternative other suppliers. Here, Argentina is a country that actually had a bump harvest last December, so they have some surplus. But also, you know, Argentina has a tradition sometimes to put export restriction to limit food inflation at home. Uh, Australia also have, have some surplus. So we are going to see other countries in the southern hemisphere that have the potential to replace some of this export, but not all. And in this context, it's still important that some countries will try to continue to trade with Russia. Maybe not the Western countries, but other countries in the world are going to have a much more um, open mind regarding uh, getting a product from Russia. You mentioned Ukraine and you also mentioned Yemen. And my second question is exactly about that. So Ukraine is one of the world's uh, leading agricultural nations. And just in Yemen, Ukraine accounts for one third percent of the country's wheat supplies. And now with the war also in Ukraine and in Yemen, Ukraine will also probably stop exportation. With that said, which countries will be more impacted by this conflict? So the conflict has started to create problems even before the invasion. For instance, Russia was conducting military operations in the Black Sea in February. And de facto, Ukraine has not exported grains since uh, early February. So we have already seen this disruption uh, taking place. And of course, during the middle of the conflict, there is no, no ships leaving Ukrainian ports. But even all the Black Sea uh, trade right now is disrupted. So as you said, you have some countries that really rely a lot on, on this region and some countries like Yemen that already face famine, face extreme food uh, insecurity. Before we were uh, talking, well, I was talking about Egypt. Egypt has a problem, but there is no ongoing famine in Egypt and we are not going to see a famine in Egypt in the, last, in the next five months, okay? 
In Yemen, the situation is much more extreme. So and you have the private sector that import a bit of food, you have government, and you have also the World Food Program that conduct humanitarian operation. So some of these, they will still try to continue them. And in this situation, we also discussed that even Russia can be exempted from some sanction on, on food trade. But what uh, they are doing is to look, you know, uh, as again to Australia, to find alternative. We have talked a lot about wheat. I also want to raise that Ukraine is the first exporter of sunflower oil. So actually even Yemen consume a number of vegetable oil, including sunflower oil, WFP for the nutrition program, you know, because you cannot just live with water and bread. Uh, if you want to have good nutrition, you need a bit of diversity. And this vegetable fats is actually part of, of their diversity. So, you know, it's not just about finding alternative for wheat, it's to find alternative for a number of products. And the extreme situation is really for these countries that are facing already high level of insecurity. So Yemen, Somalia, Eritrea, part of Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan, all these countries are really linked to this part of the world and they are already in a very um, difficult situation. So that can be the first victim after, of course, the people in Ukraine, the first victim today, including in terms of food insecurity. And how should countries act in order to tackle this, this future or already happening crisis? So each individual country is going to uh, try to protect their own consumers, in some cases uh, by uh, trying to subsidize food or subsidize households that need to pay for their food uh, when the food price go, go up. And to some extent, that's a continuation of some of the type of policy we have seen during COVID-19, where basically you had to help your population to deal with this shock. Now, at the more higher level, especially for countries, once again, in the Middle East, where a lot of the food trade is actually managed by the government. In Egypt, more half of the wheat is buried by the government, not by private operators, as we can you know, think trade take place in, um, in other locations. So here they try to diversify their source of, of supplies. But the problem we face is, in times of crisis, everyone is a bit selfish. So you are going to see a lot of countries that are going to try to buy what they can from where they can and countries that have more money are going to buy more. So obviously, you know, if you are China or even if you are Iraq today, because with the oil money, with the price of oil going up, you have a lot of oil money. So you are going to be able to buy this. If you are Lebanon, you are not right now, you don't get any money from anywhere. So you are not going to be able to really compete. And at the same time, we can see countries on the other side that want to keep grains at home that want to maintain low prices at home, that can put what we call this export restriction, these export bans. So Russia can do it both for to punish countries they don't like, but also to maintain low price at home in a situation where their own economy collapse. And so keeping food around is important for them. But Argentina will also have to deal with this food inflation and they can put export restriction. And what we don't want is to see other countries panicking and we, the worst thing that can happen today is if India say, for instance, I'm not going to export wheat anymore. Because in this case, you have people that are panicking, rushing to buy. And you have people that say, I don't want to sell. Prices just explode. But also a lot of countries that rely on a more regular basis on food markets for their, for their food supply. And that's not a bad thing. Interdependency actually is a good way to manage risk. But what you just want to make sure is not to see this wave of selfishness that will bring a lot of misery around. Now we can just call for more cooperation. Actually, in the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, when some countries are trying to put export restrictions on food, 
the global community has relatively well reacted. And so we, most of these export restrictions have been removed. And that was a big difference with the 2007-2008 crisis or the 2010 and 11. But at the same time, if you remember what has happened a couple of years ago, when it was about medical equipment, here a lot of countries have said, I'm not going to share my medical equipment with, with you, okay? Or same thing for vaccine, my population first. And really that's how you manage this kind of global solidarity, not talking about, about charity, I'm just talking about solidarity, that's going to be a key, key test for the world again. And you talked about prices exploding. When will the average person see the results of, of food prices increase? So actually it depends a bit where you are, because if you are in the US or if you are in Italy and you go and buy your bread, just 5% of the price of bread is linked to the price of wheat. Everything else is services, transportation, and so on. Now, if you are uh, starting to move to countries where these value chains are shorter, or where you start also to buy products that are less processed, um, this link between the commodity price, what people produce on the farm and what is traded, and the food price, what you see, is much, uh, much shorter. Uh, for some products like vegetable oil, where there is actually less uh, processing or even less marketing, because sometimes when you buy a food product, you also buy advertisement, not just the contents. This, this is different. So I will say that for very basic commodity, and in particular, I think if you are in North Africa and you buy couscous, uh, and next month is going to be Ramadan. So here people are going to see already a price increase very fast. Now, if you are in other parts of the world, it's going to take several months actually to notice. And in some cases, you may not even really notice an increase in price of commodity, but much more the price of energy, for example, of oil, because, you know, to move grains from one country to another, you need ships, it costs money. To process it, it costs money. To have trucks uh, moving around, oil, and once again, money. So you see, this overall situation can, can take really different shape. And just maybe a small parenthesis, the food price increase has, re has actually started in April 2021, if you look at the price dynamics. The crisis is just creating a spike, but there was already a big wave of increase in prices. But depending on which country you are uh, in, for example, in January, in some places, the overall food inflation was at 3% in Europe. When if you were in Venezuela, you were dealing with a 40% price increase or even more. So, you know, local context matters or also your macroeconomic situation matters. The last point I want to make is because we also have a crisis on the fertilizer side, this high level of food prices are not going to disappear on the spot. You know, even if tomorrow there is peace, we see, go from the energy market, the fertilizer market. And so we are entering in a period of high food prices. I will say at least for six months, if not for eight. And how does the banning from the yeah, importation of Russian gas affect the global food industry? And will this impact on investments in green energy as well? So, yes, the price of oil go up and the price of natural gas go up. Now, this natural gas market is actually very segmented across countries because you need pipeline to move gas or you need to liquefy it and the liquefaction of gas as a cost, there is more limited capacity. So uh, as of today, for instance, the price of natural gas in continental Europe is six times higher than in the US. Because the US have a lot of natural gas, they have done fracking. So 
even making fertilizer, because the link after between natural gas and the food system is really going through fertilizer. So the cost of making fertilizer right now is totally prohibitive in Europe when it's relatively still cheap to do in the US. So that's going to be one, one key channel on this energy market. And for example, Europe can bring more natural gas from Algeria, but they are not going to be able to be connected if you want to the uh, distribution system of North America or even in some part of, of Africa tomorrow. Now, the question on what it means for the future of energy and, and the necessary action that have to be taken to change energy pattern and world dependency to fossil fuel. Clearly, in Western Europe, people are going to accelerate their energy transition because they don't have alternative. They don't want tomorrow to depend more on the Middle East for oil than they depend from Russia. It's just this question about leaving the, the fossil fuel era has to, to be accelerated. It has already started eh, to some extent. Some can be done with renewable. I think the nuclear question is going to be back uh, on the table for some countries. In other parts of the world, it's going to be more ambiguous. First, the US have a lot of fossil fuel at home, so they may still, you know, some of the US policymakers are say their feedback or their reaction was uh, drill, baby drill. So basically it's not to say, let's do more renewable, but just uh, potentially let's drill more even in Alaska. When also what can happen is Russia is going to have a lot of oil that Europe doesn't want to buy. So they will sell at a discount price to China, to other countries that will find this cheap energy source and we'll say, okay, why do we need to do more transition now? Uh, because Russia has all this oil and they have lost many customers. So now we have a cheap energy. So we are going to see this kind of heterogeneous response, you know, on, on this shock on the energy market coming from, from Russia. Something that can still happen is actually Russia use a lot of foreign technology to ex exploit their oil. And without this technology, actually, their capacity to produce oil may also decline. That's something we have seen with Venezuela, for instance, in, in the last you know, 15 years. One of the biggest consequences of the Ukraine war is migration. And how does migration relate to the global food supply crisis? So just in a very simple way, if we have global food insecurity in the world today, there are three drivers, conflict and with the movement of population linked to that, climate change and global economic inequality. So anything that impacts one of these drivers is creating hunger somewhere. The migration part and the conflict part is a big one. Now, when you start to move millions of people in Africa, for example, in Sudan, what you are displacing a lot is actually a lot of farmers. And you are moving poor people from, in many cases, neighboring countries that are also poor. In the case of the Ukraine migration right now, it's a bit different. You are dealing with a relatively upper middle income economy. So it means that the number of farmers we are displacing is still limited. Most of the people we are seeing migrating is family living cities that are going to be bombed. It's not really uh, rural areas that are running away from their farms. And they are moving to a rich area. You know, Europe can take care of 5 million people. 40 million people may be not so easily because that will be kind of 10% of the population. But in the past, we have also seen other regions of the world doing huge effort to deal with a regional crisis. I mean, Colombia has accepted a lot of people from Venezuela. The whole Latin America has done something. And that was a big, big refugee crisis to some extent. So that's where I will say the, the humanitarian crisis coming from the Ukrainian refugees it's not going to be a, a direct impact on global food security. That's something of importance for them, but Europe can take care of this. 
now we still want that at one point people in Ukraine can go back to their town, go back to, to their houses, that farmers in Ukraine can go back to their field, then people in Odessa or even Mariupol, their port activity have to reopen because if you want at one point to get wheat from Ukraine, you have a lot of people that need to bring the, the wheat from a farm in Ukraine to the world market. So if this doesn't happen, then clearly we, we have a problem of, of food supply at the global level, not a big one. If we just kind of lose Ukraine, it will be a bit of tension this year, but the world will survive. But maybe something that will be more insidious is the fact that because the European Union and European countries, big provider of international aid, including food aid or economic support to what's happened in Yemen, what's happened in a lot of places, what Europe is doing with his aid money matters. And tomorrow, this aid money is still going to take care of a crisis, but it will be not Afghanistan anymore. It will not be Syria anymore. It will be Ukraine. So that's where we can see, actually, you see this much more indirect effect, where basically European solidarity is going to go to Ukrainians first, uh, and that can create pockets And over the last years, the world, we've seen a pandemic, uh, climate disasters, countries increasing where European gas prices, and all of Europe, these certainly. impacted well, other the countries food in the world system. are going to do to fill this Does gap this mean we have a fragile food system? I would say yes and no, in the sense that we are still living in a world where all these shocks have not led to 100 million people dying of hunger. You know, 200 years ago, you had famine that was killing in Europe significantly last last year of the population. Even the Irish famine, you know, lead to a lot of migration, people leaving their country to go to the other side of the world. So today we are basically feeding 8 billion people, not everyone. We still have 800 million of people. So 10% of the global population that doesn't have enough even basic calories to live a normal life. But the world today is still a much better place than it was 200 years ago or even 50 years ago. And actually in the 70s, for instance, half of the, the cereal trade was coming from the U.S. alone. So every time there was a problem in the U.S., the world was starting to panic. Now, you know, you have U.S., you have Canada, you have Australia, you have the European Union, but you have Argentina, you have Brazil, you have South Africa, you have Kazakhstan, you have Russia, you have Ukraine. So yes, we have shocks, but we have much more options to deal with this shock than, than in the past. And we have even more drought, and that's a problem. We have more flood. Actually, we have much, many more flood than drought, actually, when you look at it globally. And this impacts the system, but still, in the past, we really see these pictures in Africa. When you have locust, then you have huge famine. That every kind of two or three years, when you were thinking about Ethiopia or other parts, people were dying or were suffering extremely. Now we have, even with what has happened in the recent years, most of these pictures are, have disappeared, you know? When we really see people impacted by this famine, in many cases, because there is a war. So the overall system is more resilient, facing more challenges. The system still works, but we need to make it more resistant. We need also to help him and not just to think that, yes, all the problems will be solved by themselves. Everyone has a role to play in that. It's just about how we collectively manage that to make sure that a shock doesn't lead to a tragedy. And the last question, looking ahead, what can we expect in the next three months? So uh, in the next three months, we are going to see either very good news or uh, very bad news in the sense that right now, 
Ukraine is suffering a lot. People are displaced. Uh, some of the infrastructure are destroyed. There is very few probability that in the next couple of weeks, peace happen, or at least uh, a peace that makes sure that, you know, people in Ukraine can go back to their normal life, meaning that the planting season that normally takes place in Ukraine in, yes, in March, that is about the new production of corn, of, of sunflower, and so on, will happen. So clearly, Ukraine is not going to have a good crops for this specific product this year. But one of the big deadlines is what's going to happen in July, August, when the next wheat that have been planted during the fall should have been harvested. Because here we are talking about 20 million tons of wheat that normally the world have access to and may, may not have access to. So depending if we manage to solve this conflict in the next couple of months and we can start to see a, a way back to normal for the summer, then market will relax, people will maybe panic less, and so we will be step by step in a better situation. Not perfect because the fertilizer crisis is not going to be solved, even if uh, Russia is going back in the markets. But in any case, the sanctions are going to stay here for some time. And the sanctions are going to also disrupt this energy market. So we still have a, a bumpy road ahead. But now let's say that things actually get worse. And the conflict in Ukraine starts to go on again and again, that we see more sanctions that we see also countries starting to use food as a diplomatic weapon. Basically, if you are my friend, I will trade food with you. If you are not my friend, I will not trade with you. Or if the Western countries say, please don't buy from Russia because we don't want to make them money with this year, that can really create significant disruption for a long term. Once again, markets will adjust, people will start to redirect. Maybe Russia will say more to China and less to the Middle East when Europe, Argentina and, and the US will try to sell more to uh, the Middle East. So, you know, we can see a number of reorganization, but this will have a cost and this will take time. So let's hope for the best and hoping that the conflict can be solved in a relatively diplomatic way in the next uh, couple of weeks. But also let's plan for, for the worst and make sure that farmers around the world will have access to the inputs they need for the next harvest. I don't want that people think that they have to rush to their supermarket to store a flour and rice because actually that will create a problem when there is no problem. But in order to make sure that in the next 18 months, food inflation is under control, that we are not depleting inventories more than necessary, we need to make sure that the food sector can operate properly in the next month. And we just also hope that no major weather event will take place. So, yes, let's hope that the weather will be. Mr. Labor, thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you for having me. This is Marina Guimarães for Wikistrat.